Hello and welcome to Tech for Finance, where we help finance professionals leverage technology to support their ambitions as businesses and as individuals. I'm your host, Adam Shilton, and in this episode, we're going to be chatting with Howard Tannercliffe, who is Head of Finance for the Subscriptions Division of The Economist, as well as being a coach and teacher under his own brand, FinanceSoftSkills.com. Howard started his career as a finance and audit contractor for Dell before moving on to become an analyst at Ernst & Young and then a management accountant at DTZ for Cushman and Wakefield. More recently, Howard worked as the finance business partner for Starbucks before moving to The Economist in 2014, where he's been ever since. Howard is now a proud father, lover of good food and passionate about helping finance professionals improve their soft skills. Thanks for joining me today, Howard. Yeah, no problem, Adam. Great to be here. Excellent stuff. So you've had quite a lot of success at The Economist over the past almost nine years now. So the, the first question is, it's, it's the area that piqued my interest is on that scenario modeling project. So I see you drove up the subscription revenue about 20% by looking at price elasticities and you don't have to go into all of the, the technical detail, but could you tell us a little bit more? You know, what did the process look like? What sort of tools did you use as part of the process? Yeah, so that was really one of the, the highlights of my career. And, and that quite often comes up. People like to talk to me about that. And for me, it really highlights nicely how you don't need to be that senior in FP&A to make a massive difference. So, you know, for any company, particularly a subscriptions company, getting the pricing right is one of the most impactful things that you can do. Really, really interesting project to be involved with. And I was very lucky a manager had run the last price strategy and he handed it over to me. So that, that was great, a great opportunity. So we worked with some pricing consultants, Simon Kutcher Partners, and we, um, well, they had a tool, a willingness to pay tool, and they put some prices in front of some existing subscribers and some prospects. So we just want to make sure that, you know, we're still providing value to not only our current subscribers, but also new people. And then they, they created there's a really cool chart called a Van Westen Torp chart. And that really shows you that people's willingness to pay kind of drops off, but it's not really linear. So it's the classic case where you might pay 99 pounds for a subscription, but if it goes up to 101, it just feels like, okay, you've broken through that kind of three figure barrier. And, and that's not you know, a level that you're happy to, to pay. In that example, so you'll see these charts and they show you kind of those peaks and troughs where people really drop off quite heavily at, at those price points. And then they gave us that data, we segmented it. And then the, the really key thing about this project, which helped it to succeed was that they gave us the inputs. So the price elasticities of various different scenarios of price increases and, and drop off in so the increased churn they gave us those inputs in a way that we could so the outputs from that pricing analysis and they gave us inputs that we could then use in anaplan so we're doing all the scenario modeling in anaplan to give us the different revenues and volumes and we were completely joined up so we knew exactly what we were getting we could prepare anaplan to receive those inputs. And then that just meant that there was no interpretation required. It was a straight, give us the outputs from what your expertise. 
we'll put them into the model, it needs a little bit of sense check for us, but then really it, it's ready to go without too much interpretation required. So yeah, that was, uh, that was the, the real key to the success of that project in, in terms of the modeling side. And a quick question that wasn't in my pre-prepared list of questions, sorry. But I understand the the economists, the, the subscriptions are for both, you could, there's an online subscription, isn't there? And then there's also a physical publication, if I've got that correct. Yeah, that's right. So now the options that we have are, it's a, a digital only subscription, or it's a bundle subscription where you get the, the weekly newspaper delivered to you and you also get all of the same digital access as well. Okay. And the models, was there, was there anything interesting that came up from modeling the online versus the, the bundle? Was there much difference in those scenarios or was it pretty consistent across the board? So the main factor for us around retention is really the, the length or tenure of subscribers. So we have a real solid base of very loyal subscribers. And then naturally people in their first year, they might be trying us out for the first time, kind of more likely to, to churn off in that first year. But in terms of the digital and bundle, yeah, again, it's, it's an interesting split because you, you naturally have kind of more engagement with the, the product when you're receiving that through the, the door every week. So yeah, I think there's, people are enjoying products digitally more and more, but actually we still have a lot of people kind of choosing the bundle and, and yeah, they do react differently. It's a different subscriber type really. Again, I'd say more of what we're doing now is digital. So those people that have maybe been with us for one, two, three years, much more likely to choose digital now, but we still have the bundle subscribers. Personally, I love the paper copy. I'm always picking one up when I'm, um, I'm in the office. So yeah, we need to make sure that we have, have the right value proposition for both of those sort of subscriber types. Yeah, and I'm, I'm pro-digital. Not solely down to the fact that I want to save all the trees. I'm, I'm sure obviously that, you know, it's, it's all sustainable and, and all of that sort of thing. But I think, think you're right regarding engagement because if something's physically sat on your desk, you, you've got to move it. Yeah. You know, to, to get it out of, of your tray as it, as it were, but digital assets are a lot more easy to lose, aren't they? So yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there's also a point around sort of shareability for me. It's quite nice. So my wife will be keen on sharing the, the paper copy, it can be just a nice prompt that, okay, there's a new issue out. Whereas sometimes in the digital space, you know, you need to work a little bit to let people know that you know, the, the content is updated, you know, those kind of push notifications. And yeah, there's a different way of engaging with both of those different customer types. Fabulous. Thanks for that, Howard. So next question is then around some of the, some of the challenges that you see, because Many, many businesses are built off the back of a subscription model now, you know, whether it's IT and, and cloud software as a service, whether it's, you know, consulting as a service, you know, as a service for everything. So 
what are some of the challenges that you've seen with building a subscription business? Yeah, well, I think particularly at the moment, that cost of living is really such an issue you know, across the globe. And I think we've seen over certainly the last five years, as you said, we've seen that kind of boom in subscriptions businesses. So you can get your razor, you can get your food, you know, you can get all of those services that you talked about. So pretty much everything is, is available as a subscription. And it's become, I think, more and more crowded now. So that that's definitely a challenge. And I see lots of reports about you know, the average person has X number of subscriptions. So you know, it might be it might be double figures now. And for me as a finance person, I've always got an eye on my personal finances. And I'm thinking every month do you see the see the cash go out? And you think, well, is is that still something that I'm getting value from? So I think the that's that's important, realizing that we need to sort of demonstrate the value. And in a lot of cases nowadays, there are plenty of no and low cost substitutes as well. So, you know, not only in the media space, you know, the economists, we need to be having like real best of breed products. So you're up there against digitally native companies that are amazing. And, and we've done a lot on, on our product proposition over the last few years to make sure that we're really operating it in, in that really kind of peak product space. That's for sure. But yeah, realizing that people are going to have other options, you know, news, you can get news free. So again, it's about that value proposition, you know, being that trusted filter, that, that kind of advisor that people can come to and you don't need to go to 10 different places as well. I think that, that filtering is really key because, you know, there's so much noise out there for sure. So, see, I, I think they're really the challenges. And then finally, it's about that engagement as well. So, you know, we talked about noise already, that there's lots of companies out there competing for your attention. So how do you make sure that all those customers, they feel the value, they're engaging with you on a regular basis. And, and then once you have that regular engagement, then you know you've got a really healthy subscriptions business. Yeah, thanks for that. And and I think it's a it's a fair point, isn't it? You know, there there always seems to be either a freemium or a, a more cost effective option. So the the, the way that I've seen, so take my world, you know, SaaS software. There has been some massive momentum with some some of these unicorn companies that come out of nowhere and, and a massive massive subscription base, right? And it tends to be down to them being able to offer something that you just cannot get anywhere else, right? It ser serves a need. There's no replacement because if you want to do this, then the only, the only answer is right. But why? Right. So I think not every company falls into that category. Not everybody has a unicorn product, do they? But the other piece that I've seen work well, and this is some of the subscriptions I have to, to training platforms and, and so on and so forth, I think. A really good way, and you, you've got this at The Economist, is not just to have the, the content and the service, but the community that sits behind it. And I think that's a big gap. That, and it's difficult building a community, mind. It is really difficult. But if you have 
combination of a good service as well as a community of like-minded individuals that you only have access to if you pay for that service then you you make your your customers stickier don't you and I think it was it was Christian at the Business Partnering Institute they've got a platform now that allows them to share their training materials but it's also got a community element as well so so not only do they get the training but they get to share stories about how they've put that into practice yeah, and it's the same with some of the tools that I use. You know, I get the training, but then there's also a community where we're sharing stories. We're always looking for continuous improvement. So I think if you can nail the the value proposition and you can nail the community, I think you're onto a winner. So yeah, and certainly I see it on social media channels as well. That's a great way for people to be able to kind of interact with a brand, you know, interact with each other and see what other economist readers are thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. So to a young team then, start, and, and whether it's a startup or just a young company that, that's starting out in the subscription space, what advice would you give them starting off? Are there any recommendations? Are there any specific tools that you'd need as a baseline to, to build before anything else? Yeah, so I think that we talked a little bit about value proposition earlier on, and I think that's really key. So if I was setting up a subscriptions business and actually one of my friends is, is just setting up a, a new publication, and for me, it's really about the value proposition. So do you have a clear value proposition? As you mentioned, is it differentiated and, and do people understand it? So I think that that's one thing. And, and really that minimum viable product approach is, is really important as well, I think. So you need to figure out if what you're selling is what people want to buy. And, and maybe you've got a great proposition, but people don't understand it or you can't get the message out there well enough. So you really need to think about the product is, is one thing, but actually the marketing, the sales and marketing is really where you'll kind of fail or succeed in, in those initial times. So, Often we think, well, if we make the right product, then people will come. But in this day and age, they won't. It's such a noisy marketplace. So have your value proposition right. If, if you really believe in it, then, then that's great. You need to convince other people as well. So that's one. I think then the sales and marketing. So where are you going to find your subscribers from? How much is it going to cost you? I think that's really important. And then probably the third point would be listening to your customers. So... Particularly early on, I heard it was a really good interview with Wes Kale, who is their head of Maven, and they offer online courses. And she said, even only a few years ago, they would just be hitting the phones and, and asking people personally to sign up for courses. So maybe having a discovery call and, you know, the courses are maybe a few hundred pounds, but they're just trying to get some momentum going. Yeah. So initially you don't actually have to be scalable. That was her point. It's actually yeah. quite a nice situation to be in where you can be reaching out to people, prospective subscribers, understanding kind of their issues, their problems, how you can solve those. And then, yeah, talking to them on, on a kind of customer by customer basis. So yeah, that's probably the, the three things I'd focus on. In terms of tools, we certainly have tools at The Economist that you can listen to the customer service calls. 
so that that's a really really interesting one i think and i know our senior management listen to those on a regular basis because mm -hmm. sometimes it you know it can be hard to really directly interface with your customers so having you know a bigger company it's harder to do that and so having the ability to listen to those customer service calls i think is is a great way to connect ourselves with with our customer base and i think that's fair and, and I think sometimes we're, we're guilty and it's a, obviously we're, we're into more sales and marketing territory now. Um, but we sometimes think that we've got to guess too much and we've got to hypothesize too much. You know, we've got value proposition that we think based on this audience will work well. But, but as you say, you know, starting off, not, not everything has to scale. You know, there is a big learning exercise to be done in just speaking to either your existing or your prospective customers. And that's that's not just when you're building a business. As I say, for, for you at The Economist, the, the senior guys that are interested to hear that feedback, that's more than just, are customers happy? Are they seeing value? It's, you know, an opportunity to diversify. What, what are we not doing at the moment that we could be doing? You know, is there a different market that we could be addressing? You know, is there another gap to fill? So I think, I think they're all valid points. Yeah. So, so coming back to, I guess, more of the financing stuff here, and we don't, we don't need to get into the weeds of how you build a, a revenue recognition schedule on a, on a spreadsheet or, or anything like that. But, but from your perspective, is it, is it possible? So, so, you know, maybe a small finance team growing business in the subscription base, you know, they've either got something, I don't know, zero Sage 50 or something like that, but they're now at the point where they've maybe got, you know, contracts into the hundreds with you know 12 months you know 24 month terms whatever their, their their schedule is potentially made up of one or more products yeah so maybe not just a subscription it could be product a b and c with various different price points would would you recommend that somebody tries to find a specific subscription billing platform like a like a charge b or something like that from the ground up or do you think there is a case to say right well if things aren't too complicated you could build that database in a spreadsheet or equivalent to begin with yeah i'd say early on then yeah keep it as simple as possible i'd say and, and actually yeah you can manage kind of the the modeling in a fairly simple spreadsheet but but i'd say pretty early on you want to be migrating over to something more robust like a specialist platform because i think with the subscriber-based business all of those interactions you have with your subscribers are so key and and things like having smooth billing is so important you know if people are on auto renew you can really take take that kind of pain of having to pay away from them and making that like a really smooth process and equally if they want to cancel you know understanding why they want to cancel but also making it a smooth process and yeah yeah having that very joined up it's really important because a lot of those subscriptions are going to be monthly so you just need to make sure that it's as smooth as possible generally what i found in in my side business is that most of these tools are kind of very scalable in terms of the accessibility of getting into them when you've got kind of a, a small business and a low subscriber base and most of these tools are, are very, very affordable initially, and then they'll scale up as you scale up. So I'd say as soon as you've proved it out and you feel like you've got kind of a cash generative business, then yeah, move it over 
start utilizing those tools to make your life easier and, and then you can concentrate more on growing the business yeah and you raise an interesting point actually and sometimes people get caught up in the how is it going to be easier for us to manage our contracts and us to manage our billing but you immediately switched there to how is it going to be easiest for our customers and that's that's a that's a piece that is sometimes missed out not deliberately but because you get so caught up in your process and trying to find the easiest way to do things that doesn't necessarily always make its way to that that customer interaction yeah and, and it's simple stuff like as, as you say you know can i get into a, a portal that shows me when my next billing date is you know can i have an invoice for my last for my last month's subscription all, all of these little things make up towards that more immersive customer experience i guess you know and i mean what stripe came out of nowhere you know that's that's one of the the go-to payment platforms right isn't it they've got really slow way of, of doing that now and you know even the the sage online tools now have got portals to allow you to access invoicing so i think there's a very valid point about what that customer experience looks like not just how easily we're going to manage the business so that we can focus on our strategic goals so so thanks for adding that in it's something that isn't always front and center i guess yeah. Excellent. So, so moving into more soft skills then, and, and I was, I was doing it, doing a bit of reading and your, your experience at Starbucks and, and all of that, which, you know, big names, but, you know, probably a lot of difficult stories to tell, I guess, or, or stories where you, you probably need to get a point across effectively. So it seems as though you've, you've got pretty good mastery of storytelling. So whether it be your cost reduction initiatives at Starbucks or, or the regular trading updates at The Economist, you know, what's your process for telling that story? Do you have a process for building presentations? How are you ensuring that you're getting your point across, especially to an audience, which I'm, I'm sure now have pretty short intention spans and probably not, not enough time to, to spend in meetings? Yeah, it, it's definitely a challenge and you seem to have yeah, more and more meetings and more and more presentations yeah in in the modern world but i think a, a few things to recognize so firstly whether it's sort of a presentation or, or even just a simple email is well who's the audience for this and how much how much detail do they need really because if you're if you're at a town hall and you're giving a bit of an update on fpna at the economist you really need to zoom out and recognize that most of these people aren't going to know much about finance they're probably not going to care too much about finance in a lot of situations so there you're going to really need to focus more on the entertainment side you know and and can you kind of confound some people's expectations and really treat it as a way to entertain people with, with a little bit of information in there but not necessarily going too heavy equally for maybe a presentation to the board or senior leadership again it pays to simplify things down. So I think early on in my career, kind of wanted to show my expertise by maybe showing a bit of the complexity. You know, if I'd gone to, a, if I'd have had to do a lot of data cleansing and I had to go out to 10 different people and we had to all agree on certain numbers, I'd, I'd want to show a little bit of that kind of to prove out, you know, this, this was pretty difficult. But I realized that was quite a, quite a selfish thing to do. And, and as we were talking in, and the last point about customer focus, well, here the customer focus is, well, how can I simplify things down? And, and really just drawing out like the important points and particularly decision points. I think that's key because you need to realize the senior people, they're in 
back-to-back -back meetings, they're talking about 10, 12 different topics every day. And, and they want the whole story for sure. And they can dip into it more, ask questions if they need to. But at the end of the day, you need to say, well, look, this is the conclusions, this is the recommendations, this is the actions. So just making kind of as palatable for them as possible. Again, trying to minimize the noise in the background and just, this is what we need from you. And this is what we're recommending to you today. And, and a couple more things. So I've been working a bit on storytelling. So I really like this question, Adam. I, I think it's one of those areas where we can get quite creative yeah. as finance people. And, and I do think that entertainment angle is something that we should really think about, even if it is to more senior people. You know, increasingly, people want a bit of entertainment. So it doesn't need to be all entertainment, but if, if we can make it a little bit engaging at the start, then that, that's only going to help people to be paying attention. And, and a couple of things that I've been working on a bit more lately, we see a lot in, in kind of YouTube generation. A lot of that is you, you tell kind of answer first. So, you know, you, you might actually skip to the conclusion of your YouTube video first, kind of you, sh you show the ending and then you then let people kind of follow the steps to how you got there. And, and that's quite counterintuitive. Like I, I would never do that. I think we'll keep the ending to be a surprise, but actually that's, that's the way that it's proving really popular now. So we can use that in our presentations, kind of tell the ending first and then show how we got there. I think that's, that's a really interesting tip to get people involved. And the other thing I really like as well is a little cliffhanger. So we might be talking at the start, a little summary, and, and I'll always like to say, oh, we'll go on to talk about that next, or in the next slide, we're going to talk about this. And, and I think that, again, is a really, like a little bit of an engaging way to, to kind of keep people's interests. And actually what I've done once or twice is I've, I've set a cliffhanger out there and then not answered it. And then that, that's, I think it's intriguing for some people that loop isn't closed. So what you're hoping for then is in the questions at the end, someone might say, oh, well, you said you said you're going to clear this up and you haven't cleared it up yet. Uh, and that's really rewarding when you get asked that question at the end, you're kind of like laying a little trap for someone and, and then hoping that someone picks up on it. It's the, it's the retention piece, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, it's a good way of, of, I guess, gauging whether people have actually you know, paid, paid attention, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that cliffhanger, it might be something that's either it's not that important if it doesn't get answered, or if you don't get asked that question at the end, you can then kind of bring it up yourself. But yeah, that's, yeah, it's a way to make those presentations like more intriguing for yourself as well. You're, you're trying to like play a little game of engaging your audience as well as informing them. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good term, entertaining. It's not one you often hear when we talk about giving presentations and, you know, we, we talk about creating impact, you know, and we, we talk about telling, telling a compelling story, but sometimes the entertainment factor does, does get missed out. And obviously, you know, Paul and I in the podcast, we, we mentioned you, and I think you had that discussion that, that was, you know, do we have hybrid roles? Do we work around center of excellences? And if you are business partners and it is your role to effectively sell internally an idea, then 
it helps if you can be entertaining in the process, right? You know, a little bit more difficult for people that do take on hybrid roles that need to get stuck into the weeds of the numbers and then also have to, to present a business case. But I think, and I don't know whether you agree that, you know, with teams becoming more diverse and taking on more roles, there's kind of no option but for people to, to take on some of these hybrid roles. Yeah, I, I feel in my career and at The Economist, we are going more towards specialisation. Okay. And, and I think that's also something that I've seen throughout my career as well. When, when I think about in the past, yeah, management accounts roles, you might do a bit of financial accounting, a bit of management accounting, and then a bit of the business partnering as well. So I, yeah, I think it is going to more specialism, but, but I think where the hybrid comes in is we're getting much more cross-functional now. So that, that's, yeah, that's kind of been the change. I think that you're, you're not really as much in finance anymore. You know, you're really operating across the business. And, and that's, I think that's a really nice place to be. It's kind of a, yeah, an, an exciting place, you know, dealing with the, the product and tech team as digital teams that you know, weren't really around or certainly on that scale even a few years ago. Yes, yeah, it's kind of invigorating because they often have completely different ways of working and, and they're much better at utilising new tools than finance people. They're, they're kind of agile methodologies. Yeah, great to learn from those teams. And just one last point on the, the entertainment piece. And it, and it makes so much sense when you start thinking about it, but it's not until you start using these terms and seeing things from a different perspective that... You know, your internal battles are just as difficult as your external battles. You know, people still have short attention spans. You still need to retain interest and get that interest quickly. You know, so, so whether you are scrolling on Instagram and stopped by something that takes your attention um, because the marketing team's done well, it's what you're saying there with the entertainment factor is, you know, how can you get people more in the headspace to absorb your information as opposed to just being in autopilot, you know, and it just becoming more and more part of the day-to-day -day dirge of information that people don't necessarily register. I, uh, I can't remember who the conversation was with, but we, we were talking about this subject of, of retaining interest in, in presentations. It wasn't necessarily the retaining interest. It was the being memorable. Mm. And he said the, the best thing he ever saw, and he didn't do it, but he had a colleague that started a presentation and he had a handful of confetti and he just threw it up in the air and he said, do you see that? That's all the money you're losing if you do nothing. And he had the interest like that, you mm -hmm. know, and, and it didn't so much matter. I mean, of course it mattered what the content was that followed that up, but it, it was guaranteed that they would not forget, you know, what happened in that, in that meeting room. So, yeah, it reminded me of that. So th thanks for that. Finance business partnering is entertainers, eh? Very good. <laughs> so, so slight tangent then. So I've been keeping up with your, your LinkedIn posts. And I suppose, you know, loosely linked to storytelling, you know, business partnering, but it kind of, I suppose, relates to prioritization how do you make sure that you do have a clear focus? And, and the point that you raised on LinkedIn was, it was a controversial point where you said, 
you need to ditch your productivity apps and you need to go back to basics. I think the, the words were pen, pen and paper would be ideal, a spreadsheet if you must. Yeah. And, and I'm fine. I don't want to start an argument, but this, <laughs> for me, I, you know, I, I grew up in the cloud and I've got 15 different productivity apps on my phone and my computer. So I'd love to hear your perspective on why you feel that approach is maybe a little bit more refreshing than having an app for that in all instances. Yeah. And I realize that's, you know, it's a controversial <laughs> statement to come onto the tech for finance podcast and say such things. And, and it's fair to say, I've got a little bit of heat on that post as well Yeah, uh, yeah. from, from some other people with a similar view to yourself. And what I said in reply there was like, there's many different ways to be productive for sure. But, but really my post was inspired by a guy called Cal Newport, who is my favorite person that I found on productivity. And he's written a couple of books I, I enjoyed called Deep Work. Yeah. One, and then Digital Minimalism as well. And Deep Work is really about his his KPI, so his main personal KPI is how many hours of deep work has he done? And that deep work is time with kind of no interruptions. You might use a Pomodoro technique, which I, I quite enjoy. And that really resonated with me because, you know, there are so many distractions out there. There's so much noise and, and digital minimalism really spoke to me because I found my screen time was up to like four and a half hours per day and you know working a regular job four and a half hours per day screen time and, and I, there's some things I want to do you know that I want to do the side hustle we've got a family now so spend more time with the family you know time to exercise I, I want to write some books I want to do some big things and I sort of realized for me that it was really about cutting back on that screen time and in digital minimalism Cal Newport he talks a lot about apps and the one thing that was really pleasing to me and I find this consistently in books I like to read is that he was actually called out the economist by names he was talking about deleting all your apps and he said keep some high quality ones like the economist and I thought oh this this is this is great this this fits in for me and uh, and that's been mentioned in some other books as well so so that really kind of makes me proud to work at the economist but but what he was saying is companies will spend so much on apps and apps are all about attention and you know you'll get I remember I used to kind of get the push notifications and I, they'd annoy me you know they're red for a reason because it's it's that color that really kind of you, you notice from an evolutionary perspective I'd go in and I'd check all the push notifications and clear down all the all the red alerts and and now I've just I mean that is a complete waste of time for most apps unless it's one that you particularly like so then the approach is just clear down as many apps as you can do keep those high quality ones that you use all the time but you don't need to have 100 apps yeah you you can probably get away with a handful in most cases certainly with my job and my lifestyle so what that post is really about was saying i'm not saying productivity apps aren't useful but it's more of the mindset of, I need an app. So just sort of challenging yourself. Well, are those productivity apps doing it for you? Should, could you just choose one that does the best for you? 
and time spent on your phone again you're in a, a different sphere to me Adam so it's different for different people and, and maybe even different ages of people but but yeah audit your interruptions and and just check that the technology is working for you and not the other way around I, I agree yeah I, I agree and, and I think I'd, I can't remember what it is but I think I did a a post not too long ago though that was basically software isn't always the answer you know that there, there is such thing is too much of a good thing so i think you you and i are aligned in that thinking i'm, I'm guilty of being on my phone quite a lot not not necessarily i'm just looking at my screen time now not necessarily with the with the social media and all that sort of stuff but as as you said with kids you know there's there's a there's a lot to do and not enough time to do it and the app that i use most often is OneNote because it syncs across my phone and my computer so if I've got to finish work early um, and I've got to do something well, I say got to do and I choose to do some, some, something with the kids, then it could be nine o'clock at night when I've got the baby asleep on my lap that I'm writing down notes and all that sort of thing. But I have been keeping an eye on it because it's very easy for that 30 minutes on one note to then turn into, oh, I'll spend 10 minutes, you know, on LinkedIn you know, and searching out those red notification buttons. And they, they are a little bit addictive. You know, dopamine is a, is a good and horrible thing at the same time, right? But I've read Deep Work. Love that book. Um, I think it's great. I've not read Digital Minimalism, so I'll have to check that one out. Have you read When by Dan Pink? Daniel Pink? No. I'll, I'll send, you the, send you the link. It kind of ties to Deep Work. Yeah, and we could go down a rabbit hole. I'll try not to go down too much of a rabbit hole. But everybody's got a different... How was it described? Everybody's got a different productive phase. Yeah, so whether you're a, a night owl, you know, a, a morning lark or mm. whatever the, the middle ground is, there is going to be a best time to have that deep work. Yeah, so it's not just about the deep work. It's about the deep work in the time that you know that you're actually going to be able to do the deep work. So I'd really recommend that because it gave me a completely different perspective on time management. The other thing, and I agree with deleting apps on the phone, and I promise I'll stop after this. So what, what I did is I basically turned off all of the notifications on my phone. Yeah, so I don't have Outlook on my phone. I deliberately don't have Outlook because I can't deal with having instant access to my emails. <laughs> I just can't, so I just don't do it. But for LinkedIn, you know, the, the other apps that do give push notifications, I turn them off, which is good on one hand, because it means that I can choose when I want to go in and clear down, you know, the WhatsApp messages or the, the LinkedIn notifications or whatever it happens to be. But it's also a bad thing because if you don't get the notifications, you don't know whether you've got a notification or not. So sometimes you find yourself going into the app to figure out whether you've got notifications or not. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. So I think I might take your advice and, and instead just delete the app and say, right, well, you know, let's just do LinkedIn browser only for 15 minutes a day, for example, you know, and it might add in a bit more structure, but who knows, you know, it changes week to week. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's really challenging. And so one of the other concepts, I think you'll like digital minimalism, by the way, a lot like similar things we talked about. There's also a concept of like chunking things together. So you might say, okay, well, I've got an hour. So look, I am just going to go and do kind of admin. I'm going to like, I will go into 
check my email, you know, check apps, or clear down some messages, that sort of thing. So we, we can't get away from that. And, and we need that to be able to operate in our personal and workload. But it's just trying to make sure it doesn't sprawl over your whole afternoon or evening. You know, you're being a bit more targeted with those admin tasks. So is that is that your approach to prioritization then? You you basically carve out a, a chunk and then you assess, you know, what's most important, you know, what do I need to get done and we'll spend 90 minutes, two hours on that chunk. Yeah, well, I'd say, I mean, it's a little bit different work-wise or personal-wise. Mm -hmm. So actually, I find personal prioritization is a little bit easier because you've, for me, I've got, there's a couple of big goals that I want to achieve. And all I'm aiming to do every day is to do, so I do uh, Pomodoro, yeah. which, which people may have heard of, which essentially is about setting a, a timer. Yeah. And just using that timer to kind of keep you honest and, and not having any interruptions. So I will, I'll aim for two 35 minute Pomodoro on big life stuff every day in, in the morning to your, to your point, getting up early, yeah. no interruptions and then work wise. So I, I did a post on this a while ago, having, having you think about prioritization. I just wrote down a few ideas. Um, so this is, this is sort of a, pathway that I follow. So firstly, am I the right person to be doing it? I think that that's really important because in the past I've tried to be that sort of people pleaser that does things I shouldn't really be doing. So that's the easiest way you'll clear up some time is by putting people in touch with the right people. Second, I'll say, is my manager aware? So sometimes in the past I've been doing things that have come up and, and I've not been aligned with my manager. So one thing I try and do in the one-to-ones is just come up with an agreed list of priorities. There, then important and urgent matrix, so that Eisenhower matrix. Yeah. And a lot of what we've talked about, the noise, is you're getting dragged into that important and urgent. And, and I actually know people, I've spoken to people that, like monitoring and answering Slack and email is pretty much, that's, that's become their job. Mm. You know, and, and I don't think anyone sets out to get there and, and that hamster wheel is, it's your ticket to no personal growth. It's your ticket to no personal growth, being underappreciated at work, being underpaid, you know, getting frustrated. So like you said, that dopamine hit of doing things, getting them done, ticking things off, the hamster wheel provides you with that, but you really need to be taking some time out and, and doing the strategic things, forcefully booking time for strategic things. Otherwise, five years have gone. What are you going to write on your CV? I monitored Slack channels and emails for five years. Like it, it's really possible to do that. So yeah, trying to try and make some time for strategic things. Then a couple of important ones. Do I need input from anyone else? So that I find most of the bad is getting the data and getting things from other people. When I've got everything that I need, I can finish that bit off. That's like the last cherry on the cake type thing. So input from anyone else, let's ask them nice and early. I do have the data I need. When's the deadline? Who's the audience? And then importantly, like what's the impact if I don't do it? You know, I, I really encourage my team to push back and say, well, we do a lot of reporting. 
what's the business impact of this? How is it going to improve profitability? And it's always a difficult discussion. And the answer might be, we need to do it anyway. But actually, if we keep on asking those questions over time, we can, we can turn that around a little bit. And you might not always win the argument on that. You probably won't, but actually, if you get that culture going, yes, then yeah, eventually you'll see some benefit from that. Yeah. And, and I do identify with, with your process there. And if you can pull out the post and send me the link, then I'll include that in the, the show notes as well. I'll also include your controversial post on not using productivity apps as well. Um, so we'll, we'll do that. But my, my process, I mean, I, I try to keep it simple as well. So the only app that I now, and I used to use loads, but the only app that I now use for task management is Todoist. And I've only got three pots, which is the do today. I don't know whether it's do tomorrow or do sometime. And then something with basically three pot, pots that align with that, you know, do delegate delete kind of, kind of mentality from mm -hmm. that Eisenhower matrix. But the reason I do that is, and I'm still terrible for having outlook open and having sort of an eye on the screen here and then something else going on there. I do try and check myself every now and then, but having Todoist integrated with Outlook, I can put that email into Todoist, mark it as checked, and then I can put it into a bucket. So as opposed to everything being unread and urgent, there's there's a gate that says, right, well, how urgent is it? What bucket does it go in? And then I can revisit after the fact. And what I've often found doing things that way is if the task goes into the bottom bucket, two months can elapse, but actually nothing bad has come from you mm. not doing anything with it. And I think people would surprise themselves. And I think people too often get caught up in things apparently being urgent, but actually people just may be asked off a whim and it's, it's not something that's either relevant or essential. So I think, yeah, being strict with yourself, as well as, as you say, being as strict as you can with others and, you know, embedding that culture says look, we all need to be efficient. It's not going to happen if we're all spending our time in emails and Slack all the time is it's little things over time that add up to, to the big results, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I'm a big believer in marginal gains. You know, if you can save that one, 2% and reinvest it in more interesting things then it, yeah, it's only going to be to your benefit. Yeah, excellent. So I want to I want to come on to talk about your course, and then we can we can wrap up by, you know, you telling people where you can find out more, and then as as I say, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. We're coming up to half past. Have you got another ten minutes? Is, is yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, cool. So, financesoftskills.com. I'm getting that right, aren't I? Yeah, that's yeah. it. Good. So, there's two courses. So you've got leadership in influencing that, that one came first, right? That's yep. Yep. And That's then, you, and then you've got the become a confident networker. So do you want to speak a little bit more about where they came from, who they're aimed at and, and what you're hoping people can get out of those courses? Yeah, sure. So, so I took an interest in soft skills in my personal life about five years ago. So I had a, a relationship breakup. And it's quite a lonely time. So I, I lost, you know, our mutual friends had to move out of the house that we shared and it kind of felt a bit like starting again, really. So I moved out to central London 
I was doing like lots of socializing at the time, meeting a lot of interesting people. And I saw a course called how to never run out of things to say okay. and have more interesting conversations that run by a guy called Ryan Williams. Okay. And I thought, wow, I've never thought about how to structure a conversation. Think about how many conversations you've had in your life. Never thought about how to structure it. And I went along and, and it was, it was such a cool evening and met some great people there as well. So I started having some coaching with Ryan around soft skills. Again, it's quite an unusual thing to find someone that can coach you on that. And then sort of started doing some coaching myself and then really realizing I was at a nice intersection of soft skills are what get, gets you promoted. Finance people aren't always historically known for their soft skills, let's say. Mm-hmm. So I thought there's a really good opportunity to kind of have some specifically finance tailored courses in soft skills. And, and I don't think there are any others available as far as I've, I've found. They're the only courses on soft skills and finance people. <clears throat> so as you say, there's that leadership and influencing, there's networking. There's a, a few other ones around positivity and resilience, embracing change, relationships and rapport and attention and prioritization, which is a, a lot of what we've touched on already. So that that's probably one of my favorites. And they're really aimed at sort of junior to mid finance people, particularly networking, something I think we all know we should be doing more of with some practical tips. So they'll, yeah, very kind of inexpensive price points or $49 video based. You can dip in and out whenever you want to lots of practical examples. There's a, a sheet to kind of capture progress and, and to let me know how you, so yeah, I really think it's, it's a new kind of innovation for me, testing out what, you know, what people think of it. But I think that there's a massive opportunity there for, particularly for people that are moving over maybe from more transactional roles, those roles that may be being automated or at risk of automation, moving into the relationship roles, just learning some of those soft skills and, and then being able to like compound those benefits. You know, the earlier you start learning, the, the more runway you have to improve those soft skills absolutely so that sounds really good and it's nice to hear this the story and the the background of how it all all came to be it's it's surprising what happens it, it's surprising how changes in our personal life can inspire you know new new directions as, as it were so so it's you know, as much as you, you, you sound like you've had a tough time, some some good has come out of it. So, you know, looking at the the glass is always half full, you know, it's a credit to you for, for doing it. But the, the ones that I found are on Gumroad, which you've got a link to in your LinkedIn profile, which the the Become a Confident Network and the, the Leadership and Influencing. What were the others that you mentioned? Yeah, so there, there's a few that are just going to be posted fairly shortly. Okay. So, yeah, the, the uh, attention and prioritization a lot of what we focused on already in, in this conversation, positivity and resilience. Again, I think that's really kind of important skills that we need embracing change and problem solving, and then building relationships and rapport. So that's the kind of suite of six courses that cover, I think the main soft skills areas and yeah, there's always more to work on. So yeah, I think always thinking about the, the next course. Yeah. Very good. And I'm sure you've already got some ideas for the next course, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the personal branding is, is a really interesting one. So something that I've been working on as part of the side hustle, 
but also something that's really important in internally. And, and actually, if your personal brand is strong, then that's going to be a real key determinant of you getting that internal promotion. It, it, it's so important. It's something that most finance people don't spend really any time on. Yeah, it's sometimes a tricky conversation to broach, though, isn't it? Because you want to be transparent with the people that you work with that you have the appetite to develop, develop a personal brand. And sometimes that can go in two directions. Sometimes people see it as a, why are they, are they not invested in the business? Why are they developing a personal brand? Whereas others do encourage it. And, I, and I've seen both sides of, of the spectrum, but I think, I, I won't necessarily say there's an element of short-sightedness, but in the majority of instances, you know, taking you and I as examples, the personal brand and the, the side hustle or whatever you refer to it as, it, it complements our day-to-day. You know, you, you, you often find that if, if, if people have got a, an amazing new business idea in a different industry, that they're probably not going to do that alongside the other. Do, do you see what I do, do mm. see what So your coaching supports your work at The Economist and obviously Tech for Finance supports the work that I do. So I think there is now a world that is becoming more open to ideas that encourages personal. And I'm seeing more and more of it. Yeah, yeah, I, I really think that's the case. I mean, I, I know that people at The Economist have got significant side hustles in, in some instances, and I think increasingly it's been seen as a, a positive thing. And I think even personal branding, I mean, you don't necessarily need to have the side hustle. We know that your personal brand, you can kind of think of it like your internal reputation as well. So. I totally agree with you. I mean, I've found that this is the most I've learned in a short space of time, really trying to, you know, develop courses, sell courses, market courses, get the message out there. It's been an incredible kind of couple of years for me. But even if you're not doing that, just having an eye on your internal reputation, what you're known for, how, how do people perceive you is, is super important. And that really will help you to get that internal promotion it's one of the the key things you can do that most people don't spend much time on yeah i think that's a good shout yeah de definitely something actionable that can be taken away from today because it you know the steps are, are pretty small you know if, if you're not you know recording podcasts or you know writing training courses there's probably still some quick wins you know whether it's just you know paying a little bit more attention to your linkedin profile and how you perceive to others or you know is it a modification to your email signature? It's, you know, it's, it's little, mm. little things like that. So it could be baby steps before you transition to being a, a completely new person, I guess. <laughs> yeah, very good. Cool. It's been an absolute pleasure, Howard. How, how can people get in touch? I'll, I'll share your LinkedIn profile on the show notes. Is there anywhere else people can, can find your content, find your courses? yeah so linkedin's the best place to find me and i'll, I'll post there every day usually in, in the morning so yeah come and say hi comment and, and interact is, is always welcome and then other than that yeah financesoftskills.com is the website so and that's where i'll be yeah you'll find all the links to the courses and some sort of longer form content as well and ability to subscribe to the newsletter as well Excellent. So I'll, I will include some, some of your posts in the show notes as well. I'll include the links to, to finance soft skills. 
yeah, and then maybe at some point in the future we we can have a, a a round two conversation when when finance soft skills has now got 20 courses and you know you, you you've smashed that and we can have a discussion about why it's been such a success so i look forward to that conversation as well yeah that'd be great i'd be uh, be great to come back yeah all right well thanks ever so much for your time all right cheers Adam. Cheers.